Welcome to the Founders for Good podcast, hosted by myself, Craig Turner. Join me as I speak to the most inspirational founders of four good startups, the people that are leading the way when it comes to solving the world's most pressing issues. I explore their journey as founders and their best kept secrets on how to grow a four good startup and how to hire top people. My hope is that this will inspire you to be part of the solution and do your bit in making the world a better place. Thanks for tuning in to the Founders for Good podcast. Gabby Jahan Shahi Edlin is the founder and former CEO of Bloody Good Period. Gabby is well known for founding Bloody Good Period, a charity that's created the movement for menstrual equity, inspiring the nation to think differently about periods. After volunteering in a refuge, Gabby noticed that period products were not one of the items being provided to refugees. She posted on Facebook for help and she was overwhelmed by the support. And she saw a big opportunity to help people that menstruate in getting access to the products, support and education they need. She set up a charity with a bold brand and a clear mission to work with the government, employers and the public to help solve this problem. In this episode, Gabby chats candidly about periods, creating a social movement and removing the stigma of periods, building one of the most unique charities from the ground up and her journey stepping back as CEO. Hey Gabby, welcome to the show. Pleasure to have you on. Thanks for having me. Of course. So um, just want to chat a bit about your, you know, I saw your background was very much in like the arts and creative space. um, And I just wondered if you can kind of talk me through the influences and like key moments that led you to founding Bloody Good Period and like starting, I guess, the social impact movement. Yeah, I mean, I I guess I always, or, or never, probably never quite fit into the work, to the world of work and the things that you know, the sort of progression, I guess. And so it always felt um, maybe not obvious at the time, but it started to become quite clear that I'd need to, to do something for myself. But that journey probably started when I was working in art galleries in London. And this was probably about four or five years after graduating. And it became really clear that I wasn't going to progress any further without a master's degree. It's really, you know, it's really unusual to not have a master's degree in um, the fine art world or the art history world. And I didn't have any money to do a master's. And I was really worried about, you know, how I was actually going to get on. But I thought, I'm just going to have a look around and see what comes up. And so I had started looking for masters in sort of arts education, thinking that's where my career was going to go. And, you know, I was going to carry on that way. But I came across a course at Central St. Martins, which was called Applied Imagination in the Creative Industries. And something about it just just struck a nerve. And it was all about um, entrepreneurship and asking better questions and social change and behavior change and how thinking creatively and through design, you can really sort of change the world and that moment of finding that course was like a real shift for me in that I realized that was really what I wanted to do that was the stuff that interested me um so I applied for the course to the masters I got in um and then I had to think about how to pay for it and so I started I decided to do a kickstarter and I started selling art so I I mean, I don't do so much anymore, but I used to take photos and paint. So I started doing that. And around the same time, I went into the course leader's office. I think it may be, this was maybe just before I got in. 
um, and told him what I was doing. And he was so impressed that somebody wanted to be there that badly, I think, that they gave me a scholarship to do the master's. That was sort of a real turning point in being like, okay, actually, this different kind of thinking, not the kind of thinking that I've been trained in uh, university and, you know, in these art galleries, that's actually what's going to get me a bit further. And that's what's going to sort of change people's minds. So I did this master's for two years when I was working, had the time of my life, absolutely loved it really specialised in um, how to make feminism um, accessible to men. This was about eight years ago, I think. So it was kind of like, it felt like it was a a fresh wave of a topic at the time. And then uh, left the Masters in, I think it was 2016. Thought I would find some really interesting job to go into and just it was like tumbleweed I just I couldn't find something that was right for me I just it it just wasn't working uh so I carried on working as a nanny by this time and also working in the arts and I started volunteering at an asylum seeker drop-in center which was run by the dad of the family I was nannying for um and I realized that they didn't have period products and I had just read an article um, about what women do when they don't have period products, when they're homeless. And the answer is nothing. Um, And it's really traumatic and stressful. And so I just started collecting them. I put a message on Facebook um, and really quickly um, donations started coming in. And it became really clear, you know, soon after that this was something that was going to be bigger than just, you know, Gabby's project. And so I decided to brand it. Um, I decided to um, create a sort of narrative around it. And I really used those skills that I had um, acquired on the masters around behavior change and around sort of an intervention uh, to make, to make what then became bloody good period really different from what I saw existing in the space, which was a lot of euphemism, a lot of apologetic silence, a lot of sort of exploitation of people's faces and people's stories. And really that was how it started through these sort of unlikely or maybe quite likely paths. Yeah. No, I think it's incredible sometimes how these like small moments or like key decisions actually have such then a big impact down the line of, of like you know, altering how you think and the opportunities that come your way and then how you grasp those when they come up. So, um, and I'm definitely going to explore bloody good period in a bit more detail shortly in that unique brand that you built. But first I just actually want to chat to you about periods in general, because um, I think lots of people are still ignorant. I would include myself in that. Um, and so it's a really basic question, but I find sometimes those are the best ones. Um, so yeah, my, the first question is like, what is a period? And then secondly is you know, how do periods differ from person to person? And like, what are some of the more severe symptoms that people can have? Sure. Yeah. I mean, the first thing that I think it's really important to acknowledge is that a lot of cis men, so men who are uh, born into male bodies, not trans men, don't ever get to really ask about periods because you are taken out of the room at the moment where girls learn about them. You're, I don't know what you do, but you go and play football or you get <laughs> to talk about wet dreams or something like that. <laughs> it's one of the two. Um, and so <laughs> you don't ever really get to learn about it. And so it's always really great when I you know, get to talk to men about it, because especially when they are open about what they do and don't know. So, you know, I'm really glad to talk about that. 
Um, what is a period? It is basically um, a part of your menstrual cycle. So your cycle is completely on average. So the no- there is no normal cycle, but it's around 28 days. Um, it's how your reproductive system works. And the period is anything between three to seven days where you bleed from your womb. Um, it's the menstrual blood coming out of there. So it's not, you're not bleeding from some sort of injury. It's specifically your womb lining that's coming out. Um, and that's what happens. It happens to everybody with a womb. So to women who are uh, cis, so who, who are born female, and it can happen to trans men, it can happen to non-binary people with a womb, generally happens anywhere between about eight and 13 or 14 years old. Um, and it can be associated with a lot of pain. So some people experience really bad cramps. Um, there is really, you know, no extreme pain is normal. So, you know, anybody who is experiencing anything that doesn't feel like they can cope with it with like paracetamol, like that can become something that you need to go and see your doctor about. Um, and other related conditions uh, that we talked about a lot at Bloody Good Period, which is why we need to end the shame around it, is PMDD. So that can be, uh, that's premenstrual dysphoric disorder, which um, where your period or, you know, what's happening around it can really affect your mental health. You can have fibroids that are growths in your womb or around your womb, endometriosis, um, which is also a really, really painful um, disorder as well. So all of these things um, are relatively common, but that doesn't mean that they're sort of acceptable and normal for people to experience. But then also you have people who just have really um, uneventful periods as well. So you you just bleed and you bleed an amount that's really, you know, you're able to cope with, you're able to take care of as well. That's what we mean by a bloody good period. It's something that you're able to deal with effectively and able to live your life in the way that you choose. Uh, so that's that's like, you know, your sort of two minute rundown of what periods are. <laughs> no, thanks. Thanks for explaining. Because like you said, I've, I've never really actually had someone sit down and explain it to me. Um, like I grew up with brothers. Um, my mum was always very, you know, it was a kind of taboo subject. We didn't talk about it. We didn't really know what was going on. And then um, like now I'm a dad of two daughters. And I don't want it to be like that in the household. Like I want to be able to talk openly about it, but also understand these things. Um, and yeah, you know, like you said, like you grew up as uh, as a cis man and and you just don't know and you're taking out the room with the conversation and when you kind of when the, the topic does come up it's either like something you quickly move on from or you kind of make a joke out of it which isn't the right way to deal with it either way um so I actually just the next question was going to be around like how you feel the general kind of perception um views of of like periods have changed like if you go back to you know a decade ago I guess versus to like where we are now do you feel like we are heading in the right direction or is there still a lot of work to be done around how how it's spoken about in the topic both there there is a huge amount of work to be done but there have been huge strides um it's it's really amazing to see what us and other activists have been capable of changing so uh, we now have free period products for school children in the uk um which is a massive thing the way that adverts this was something i was really passionate about in bgp the way that adverts talk about periods has completely changed um, they really started to follow our lead and be less euphemistic, less shame-based, and really just about it being a fact. It's what it is. Blood is red. It's not blue. And 
yeah, that's been brilliant too. And also there's been some huge strides in in products as well. So there's way more reusable and eco-friendly products on the market as well. Um, it's no longer just you either have a pad or a tampon. It, you know, there's cups, there's pants, there's all sorts of things. The CBD tampons that help people with cramps. So we've come really far, but that's only a part of the journey. There's also a huge amount of work to be done on who can access period products, um, which is why Bloody Good Period exists, because people in really difficult financial situations just are usually completely unable to put that first because they've got food to buy, they've got travel, they've got children to take care of. And also, you know, there's still a huge amount of shame and taboo around it. There's still a huge um, lack of understanding about what they are and what it means. There is still, you know, not enough care and attention in the medical profession about how much people can suffer from difficult periods as well um, and what is, you know, quote unquote normal. So, yeah, there's, there's so much work to be done globally and in the UK itself you know, there is still a lot of shame and there is still a lot of stigma attached to it. And that's something that I really see changing. Like it's, it's really possible and it's really doable, but like it's, it's something we have to push at. A hundred percent. And um, in terms of like how we create long lasting change, what's your, like, how does that need to happen? Is that got to come down from the government or can we as like individuals, business owners, employers also have a part to play? Yeah, it's everybody. It's it's everybody. So um, at Bloody Good Period, we were calling on the government to provide free products for everybody who needs them, which is what's happening in Scotland and has been a really big success. Uh, that's one part of it. Um, business owners, any sort of employers. Um, what what we created, me and my co-founder, Joe, when I was at Bloody Good Period, created um, a sort of uh, human resources consultancy um for a businesses called Bloody Good Employers. Um, and that's really thriving. That's in its, I think, second year now, um, raises money for the charity. Everything goes back into them, but it provides education um, and advice, uh, policy change, anything like that around periods for any UK workplace. So that's a really big part of it. And then just people, yeah. I mean, I think there's there's um, a huge responsibility placed on women to make the change ourselves and actually there's so much that um, that men can do, you know, just talking about it, being open about it, you know, listening without squirming, just just being there. And I think especially as dads of um, girls or young people who menstruate, just being in the room. So we had a podcast at Bloody Good Period that talked to men about periods could stay in the room because the whole idea was that we really you know, I understand that it's not the easiest thing for people who don't menstruate to talk about. It's just not. But the best thing that you can do is be there, learn yourself, and also don't make it something where, you know, the dad runs out with his hands in the air screaming, like, just just be part of the conversation. Because, you know, ideally, we don't want to have health and female health, Mm -hmm. because we need to just have health altogether, where we're all able to talk about um, the things that we're experiencing and women's health and female health or, you know, womb health doesn't just become this niche part of our sort of cultural understanding. It's it's about half of us. Like most of us, you know, all of us should be able to talk about the rest of us, you know? Uh, yeah, 100%. Like, and as a, day, like, as a parent, like, I, I definitely want to be part of that conversation. And to, not, not just on this, but like any topic, I just want my kids yeah. to feel like they can come to me and talk to you about anything and it's all open and sure. transparent. Um, 
And then I guess going back to something we talked you were talking about earlier about the people like most affected, because um, uh, obviously a term used I think quite a bit by uh, BGP is is menstrual equity. Um, I just wonder if you can just um, expand mm-hmm. on like what what does that term mean, and then like who are the people that actually like impacted the most um, that you know, don't have access to period products. Sure. Well, menstrual equity is the term that we prefer to use over period poverty, which was coined about a year after um, we um, started. And the reason that is, is because it's not just about poverty. Um, Menstrual equity was coined by Jennifer Weiss-Wolf, who's a writer and lawyer in New York. And the way she thought of it was that in order to reach equality, everybody has different things that they need to access. So equality, you know, might be seen as the same thing for everybody, whereas equity is some people might need more of a leg up or more financial assistance or, you know, because of the way that they don't start on this earth equal, basically. So that's the way we like to talk about periods is that we're uh, providing or, you know, working towards menstrual equity. Um, Generally, the people that we worked with were those who were um, less able to have some sort of um, equality or access to period products. So that was asylum seekers and anyone in poverty. But asylum seekers are obviously people who have fled to the UK or to any country because of war or because of political upheaval or because of a personal trauma, which means they can't stay in their home. They get to the UK and they receive about £40 a week to live on. They're not allowed to work. They don't get to choose their accommodation. Often they're put in really, really horrific accommodation as well and re-traumatized all over again. It was always really important to me to start with this group because I know some people believe in a sort of trickle down um, economics where eventually the sort of poorest people will be taken care of. Whereas I really believe that if you take care of the those sort of most affected and most in need, it will be better for everybody. If we make sure that periods are able to be healthy and acceptable for people who are least likely to access that and to be able to have that, then it will be good for everybody else as well. So yeah, so there's lots of different ways that you can create menstrual equity and that might be free products for people, education uh, that's away from schools or in schools, um, you know, access to medical professionals, that kind of thing. Awesome. And, and you know, for, for the listeners, if, if anyone wants to educate themselves a bit more or learn more, there are some great resources on the Blood Good Period website, um, which will be a link in the show notes. Um, and yeah, Gabby, just to, I guess to talk about Blood Good Period then and come back to that, pick up where that journey journey stopped earlier when you said, you know, you, you kind of seen this need, started up a Facebook group and it started to take off. Can you can you can you feel me in like where did it go from there? Like was it just yourself initially? How were you doing everything? Like what did you focus on to begin with? Uh yeah, so at the beginning it was very much it was product and getting products to this drop-in center. And how it worked was um people sent me products through an Amazon wish list, or if they knew me, then they had my address and they just sent products in bulk. So for the first year, I think, I was just doing it from my flat. I just had piles and piles of period products in my flat under my bed (laughs) it was was ridiculous I just can't believe I did it um and then um volunteers started getting involved so I put us on Twitter and people's just it just it it really just blew up everyone wanted to help everyone wanted to donate um 
And so I started recruiting volunteers. Um, and my first volunteer, Natasha, got us a storage locker for free um, in Alexandra Palace in North London. So we then moved to there. Um, I then brought on other volunteers who were, um, more, you know, even more dedicated, had even more time. Um, so Anna, Lily, um, Amy, and all of these women who um, basically use their like design skills, their social media skills, their organizational skills, and really started to make it into less of a just, I collect products and I give them to you, to it being more organized, to it being more public facing. And then after about um, a year, I think, or maybe a little bit less, I just thought this is this has got to be, well, I mean, I realized this immediately, but like I was able to have time to think about this has got to be sustainable. We can't just be giving people products once, you know, otherwise you serve a trust, it becomes traumatic for people. So I thought, well, I think this needs to be a sort of proper organization. So I started looking for a board of trustees, started looking at applying for charity status. That took us quite a while. The charity commission didn't like our name very much. They thought that bloody and period shouldn't be together. Um, we managed to fight that. We eventually became a charity in 2019. And I eventually started recruiting people slowly. So we recruited me as the CEO. The trustees recru- recruited me, um, hired me. And yeah, we started bringing in slowly other team members. Um, and by the time I left in May, I think there were 12 members of staff, two, two sort of uh, structures that was Bloody Good Period and Bloody Good Employers. Uh, with an education program, we were co-conveners on the government's uh, period poverty task force. We were doing all sorts of amazing things, but it was really, for, for me, you know, it was a, actually quite a slow growth compared to probably like other startups because I really wanted to do it properly and carefully. I really didn't want to just explode and become the biggest charity in the world. I wanted to become a charity that would do the most good. I used to say that I wanted to become the charity that was the fastest to die, which I still believe. But now it's becoming just more obvious because the world is is getting more and more traumatic for people who are, you know, less financially secure that we will probably be around for a lot longer than we intended. But it was always really important to me that we were sustainable, that we didn't sort of just burn through things and resources and people in order to to meet this need. Like it had to be like a really structured, really careful um, way of working. No, it, def- it definitely did. I didn't did. answer your question. <laughs> I forgot what it was. <laughs> if you're listening and thinking, I'd love to work for a company like this, then you need to go to www.jobsforgood.io where they have the best jobs in four good companies. From climate change to social impact to green transport, you will be able to find the perfect job for you. Trust me. Check it out, www.jobsforgood.io. Now back to the podcast. Um, and I mean, quite a few things to unpack there, but one thing I wanted to, I guess, come back to was the name, because I've always been a fan of like very bold, unapologetic brands. You know, how did you come up with the name? Was it you that came up with the name? Yes. Um, I, I don't know. It just came, came to my head. I was at work one day and, it, and I just went, oh, bloody good period. Like it just, it just popped in. Like, I think it was, it was because I really wanted to find a way of it being funny and fun. Like it's an awkward topic for a lot of people. It may be less awkward now because of the work we've done, but like six years ago, like 
it was incredibly uncomfortable for people to talk about. Still is for many. And so I wanted it there to be a bit of lightheartedness to it. Um, and also to celebrate or not celebrate, but like try and um, bring people together in, in, in like Britain to do more for um, other people uh, and, for, and for ourselves as well. And so Bloody Good was quite like a, I thought it was quite like English and British, which I found quite funny. Um, but yeah, I just also thought, I was like, you've got to have the word period in there. Like you just got to, it can't be called like helping hands <laughs> or like, you know, ladies getting together. If anyone calls their company ladies getting together, then they've got a problem. <laughs> I just wanted it to be like, I wanted it to draw attention because it, it had to, because it's such a, it's such a, a secret, such a silenced topic. It had to be something that people would notice. And the same thing with the logo as well. I mean, the logo has now been brilliantly refined by um, a studio of our own, the creative agency. It now looks very good. But like I designed the original logo as a pad with bloody good period written in the middle in, in red because I was like, it's got to be provocative, not for, the, not for the sake of being provocative, but because we need to provoke people into, into listening and to making a change really in this because people are really, really struggling with not being able to access products or education. Yeah, no, I, I I love it, and and like you said, it's it's so clever. It all works so well, and you go on the website and you read through, and everything just like links nicely, which is where I think the most powerful brands come. It's like authenticity, like being very genuine, and also having like a very clear like message of, of what they want to achieve and how. Um, you you obviously explained the journey, which has been incredible. Um, and when you were running Bloody Good Period, like what? What did you find, number one, were like real enablers or accelerators for the business? Like what, what really helped you? And then on the other side, what were real blockers along the way? I think having a really good board was essential. So my chair of trustees, Sue Rubenstein, was just, I mean, she's still there, is just an incredible force of nature and really, really believed in what we were doing, as did the other trustees, which really made it easy for me to take risks um, because that is what we did a lot of bloody good period we took a lot of risks the charity industry is not known for taking risks um but i wanted to do things differently i wanted to be kinder i wanted to be human you know i wanted to make an actual change not just fill a gap so having a board that um you know because they're essentially the bosses they're essentially accountable for the way that it runs having them really believe in me and have faith in me and my vision um was crucial what else um just, I think, having, I, I was just really lucky, I think, in that we got, it really spoke to a lot of people. And so there were, and I never really had a, a moment where I thought there's no one here that can help. There was always people eager to volunteer, always, we, we never struggled in our recruitment rounds. People always wanted to work for us. And it always just felt like businesses wanted to do, you know, not, not always great. And, you know, they often wanted to help and then, you know, didn't help because, you know, they wanted to do it their way. But generally I found that there were just so many people who were just really keen to see this work. Um, and that, that's really, really important because especially like we were fighting a lot of the time It was a big fight to get people to notice something that is, Firstly, like not life or death. So it's not, it wasn't a charity that is, you know, if you don't give us money, people will die. Like that's not what, that isn't what's going to happen. But it's something that's crucially important to people's livelihoods and to their happiness and to their health and to their well-being. And of course, 
you know, if these things don't taken care of, but get taken care of, you know, any sort of these disorders, they can, they can, of course, be fatal. But that wasn't sort of what we were leading with. Um, I think just having that real, like, internal, I know this is right, like, that is what kept me going. Like, I, I know that we're doing the right thing here. There were a lot of times when um, we would, people would try and um, cancel us for being trans inclusive, for example, um, or, you know, they would sort of try and waste our charity time and money um, because they didn't like that we were including everybody. Um, and that was really, really difficult. And it was, it, I would never have called it a blocker, but it, it really sort of stood in our way of progress. The same thing to people, you know, there were occasionally people who just didn't like our style and didn't think that, um, didn't think that, I mean, weirdly that leading ethically was the right way. So I always refused to use photos of the people that we worked with. Um, it was, it, it was completely banned doing that. I know that that makes a lot of money. You know, we've all heard about comic relief and how much money they bring in. Um, but I refused. I didn't want to take advantage of anyone. I didn't want anyone to feel exploited. And that definitely stood in our way of fundraising. But I never, you know, we never had to feel guilty about what we were doing. So, you know, some, some bad advice sometimes, I guess, can be not necessarily a blocker, but a challenge. I guess I'm not sure what what other thing, what things do people generally say. <laughs> no, I think that's a, think a pretty of. pretty good overview, uh, and I think that last point is a really important one. Like you should stay true to your values and, and what you what you stand for and, and believe in, rather than uh, compromise those. And, and I find that stuff will always come back and bite you at some point. I agree. Um, you mentioned it earlier. I can't remember quite how you phrased it, but it's also on the website. I appreciate you have left now, so so I'm, I don't want you to speak on their behalf. But I think it's something you mentioned about you know the aim was always actually for a bloody good period to no longer exist or be needed, and sadly it's looking like mm-hmm. um, it will be needed at least for the kind of the short to medium term. But my question is like, what would need to happen? Like, what would the world need to look like to or get to a point of where bloody good period is no longer needed? Mm-hmm. We'd need free products for anyone who needed them and and quality choice of products. So um, sustainable ones or, you know, whatever it is that people need. And that's most likely provided by government and business as well. And we would have to have a an education system which really included reproductive and menstrual health. So people being able to learn basically about their bodies so that you don't get to eight, nine and not know what's happening and think you're dying, which is what happens to some young people, which is, you know, so horrible. Um, and just be it be as normalized as having a cold or having a headache um, is, I think, the place that we we need to get to where it's no longer this subject that's like in hushed tones and you only talk about it, you know, if like you're in the right environment, like it, you know, it's just, it's a normal part of some of our lives, like, and it just needs to be accepted as that. So I, I think, I think that's, that's where the world could be. I don't think it's that unlikely, to be honest. I, I, I still see this happening. I think behavior change happens slowly, but it does happen. Um, and that, yeah, that, that would be like a, a, a bloody good period shutdown, which I look forward to. Yeah. Uh, and I think we all do like in, in the right way. And hopefully that's something we can like get to in the next, I don't know, few years. Um, and then to talk about um, the fact earlier this year, you, you obviously stepped back from the business and uh, I believe Rachel Grocott has now taken over as CEO. Mm-hmm. Um, 
just wondered if we can explore like you know what, what drove that decision your side and, and like what did that transition look like both for you personally and, and for the business yeah I mean I decided I think it was around autumn it was about a year ago I just wasn't enjoying it anymore and it's incredibly hard work for not a lot of money and so you really need to enjoy it like you just have to there's sort of nothing else like you, there's nothing else that will keep you going and I just realized like i I don't really enjoy being a manager. I don't, you know, I love people. I love working in teams. I love, you know, working with other people, but actually I was spending 90% of my time managing and doing payroll and, you know, budgets I found interesting because that was really a new skill for me, but just that kind of thing and policy and all of that. And actually like, I was like, this is, this isn't for me anymore. And I was exhausted as well. I was absolutely exhausted. It takes a lot out of you founding. I think it takes even more out of you founding if you're a woman, you know, and I think it takes even more founding out of you if you're not a white woman, which I am. But I just think it's really important to acknowledge that, you know, all these other intersections play a part in how stressful it can be and the challenges that you're constantly having to face. You know, I, I just as an example, one of the people that we were fundraising from used to just keep calling me cheeky because I sort of made changes and asked for things. And I just remember just being like, you would never call a man cheeky. You'd call him good at his job, you know, and that's just one tiny thing that you're constantly fighting against. And yeah, I just felt like this, the organization is not going to get the best from me anymore. And I cared deeply about it. And I cared deeply about the people in it and my, you know, amazing team. And I didn't want to lead from that place anymore where I didn't want to be there. And I was exhausted and I was just there because I was holding on because it was mine. So I made the decision to to step down and it was such a great decision. And everybody in Bloody Good Period was incredibly supportive. And the transition period was, no pun intended, was about six months, I think, total in the end. And I got married during that point as well. So it was probably a bit much um yeah <laughs> completely ridiculous I can't believe I did that now I mean I'm glad yeah. I'm married I just can't believe I did it. um but yeah we we took around six months to do it because I felt like it really needed to be done slowly but also I didn't want to stay you know a lot of founders will stay for a year or two after deciding but the charity was in such a good place and had such a strong team that I just felt like, you know, you actually don't need me to hang around that long. So it was just, it was a lot of planning and spreadsheets and handover and digging through, you know, five and a half years of emails and documents to make sure that, you know, the team and Rachel, the new CEO, had all the information that they needed. It was really boring admin stuff, you know, it was doing a lot of meetings and saying goodbye and encouragement and that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, it was, it was really weird. <laughs> it was very weird extricating myself from something that had really like, was really who I was and I was it, you know, and it was me and it no longer being that. And almost like just having to learn who you are again, not as a um, a founder or, you know, you're always a founder, but maybe not as a, a CEO, like, who are you? Like, what does that mean? Where does your confidence come from? All of that I found really difficult, but I think, you know, managed to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a big thing. There's a lot of grief in it, I think, but a lot of like 
joy in celebrating what you've achieved, which I keep reminding myself to do. Yeah, no, well, first of all, like, thank you for sharing. And, and second, I mean, that was going to be my next question, actually, was like how you felt in terms of like, your identity. Because I was trying to think of like, if I, if I close down my business, my main business, Confido, tomorrow, which I've been running for four and a half years, it's a huge part of me. And it's almost kind of how I identify myself in a lot of ways. Um, so yeah, it must be really mixed emotions, I guess, like relief in some ways, because if you've been you know, feeling that way, also, you know, uh, yeah, must just reluctance as well. Like you said, grief. Yeah, it, it must be a real mixed bag of things um, and take some time to, to process that, I guess. Yeah. And that's what's really important. So I took three months. I could have taken longer um, if I didn't have to pay the bills. Like, you know, it just that separating yourself is 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 hugely important it was like some really important work that I did you know and I did it by a lot of journaling and you know really trying really talking to people really talking to my friends and family about who who I am when I'm not you know BGP Gabby you know what what what's she like what does she mean um and also like I found that by doing a lot of new things as well so I started cold swimming um I started um, writing a lot more. Um, I started actually meeting up with people that I'd never been able to because I was always so busy. Doing all of these things really helped me sort of find my identity again. And it's still a work in progress, like very much. You know, I still don't really know what I want to do um, for work. But um, yeah, it's it's a lot of feelings. It's a lot of emotion and, and it shouldn't be sort of underestimated. Like no matter how big or small the enterprise is um when you're a founder you ultimately put a piece of yourself in that work and it's sort of up to you I guess whether you try and take that piece back or you let it go and grow a new piece which I think is the healthier thing to do so and I'm not sure if you um have decided yet but like do you know what's next for Gabby like have you decided what you're going to start doing next or are you still still trying to figure it out I'm still trying to figure it out. I mean, at the moment, I'm doing a few different things. I'm writing for um, a magazine, a diversity and inclusion magazine about topics that are hard to talk about in the workplace, which I'm enjoying. It's definitely like new skills. Um, I'm also going to be working on a podcast as well, um, which I don't know if I'm actually allowed to talk about publicly yet. Um, but they're sort of things for now. Um for the future, yeah, I, I, I just don't know. And I'm sort of talking to a lot of people and trying to find out what it is. Um, you know, what does a very creative entrepreneur type person go into when it's not founding your own organization again? Or, you know, what I do know is that I want to go into work that has like a social impact and that is all about like behavior change and finding new ways of doing things. So yeah, I'm looking, talking. So if, any, if anyone thinks of anything, I'm always interested to hear from people about that kind of work and sort of what, what you know, where there's space to, to do that kind of thinking is, is where I'm like heading. I think. Yeah. Well, hopefully you can find some good like uh, advisory kind of role where you can, I'm sure there's lots of people out there that have great ideas of how to solve major social problems but don't necessarily how to go about going yeah how to do it how to structure a company um that that would you know see huge amount of value in having someone like yourself like advising them um, but i'm sure you'll figure it out <laughs> um and you know the final part of the podcast is just chatting a little bit about you know when you are building like an impact business like how you've gone about it and, and some of the things you've learned along the way um 
And, you know, again, like when I was looking through the Bloody Good Peer website, um, and I assume this is stuff that you were involved in, but like there's a really clear structure mm-hmm. in terms of like the mission, the the action strands, your your ways of working. Mm-hmm. Was that something that was put into place quite early on or was that something that's like developed slowly over time? I mean, it looks incredible. I've not seen anything like that, to be honest. Oh, I'm glad. Um, no, it really developed, but the values were early early so I think that's the most important thing you can do as an organization is 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 work together to write down what your values are because that takes you that that allows you to make any decision you know for us it was you know we were always values led um and and I think BGP continues to be um it wasn't until a few years in that we thought you know we've actually really got to start strategizing here like it can't just we can't just take on everything at the beginning you know there was so there was such little of this work being done um that we could say yes to everything and to everybody because um you know we sort of had to in a way or felt like we had to but as time went on and as other people started to set up sort of similar type work and um you know people started to talk about it more we felt you know we really got to sort of nail down what our niche is and what we do really well because we can't just do all periods everything you know um so that was that was that was quite a big piece of work especially for me um leading the team into creating a strategy and really what that how that came out was I can't understand a strategy document when someone tells me what what that is. I I don't I don't know what it is. I just I don't understand it. My brain doesn't work like that. So I really needed to create something that came out of my head and that felt really clear to everybody who would read it. Um, and so that's why we developed these ways of working and these three action strands because I felt like that was a really clear way to express the work that needed to be done, the work that we would do, and what and what we would say yes and what we would say no to. So it really developed and it continues to change. And, you know, I believe that uh, the team have just done their sort of strategy refresh. So I'm interested to see what what comes out of that, you know, when I get to talk to them again. Um, but the values are the most important thing you can do. Like know what you know what you will and won't stand for, know who you will and won't work with, um, you know, and, and know what you'll say yes to and what you'll say no to. Otherwise, you can become everything for everybody and which equals nothing for nobody basically yeah no it's great advice and for me like your you know your values are your basically like your company's like moral compass like they keep you on track absolutely um absolutely and yeah your other points as well like i think it's just key to to have like complete clarity and like you said what what you do what you stand for how you want to do it um Mm. and you know when you're when you're providing public good and, and you know spending public money as a charity like I think it's really important people understand how that's how that's all going to work because I've we donate at my company to various businesses and we do a lot of research around it and some are really fluffy and you can't really tell actually how they work where the money's mm-hmm. going and we always invest in the ones where there's transparency around that um and, and you know exactly the impact you will have through that through that partner that you work with earlier obviously you mentioned part of the journey was recruiting a team um so just wondered like mm-hmm. from your learnings from hiring like what is what is the attribute that you value most in people like when you're interviewing? What what is the one thing you're really looking for from from a person like generally? Oh, that's a really good question. What did I look for? I wanted to know. Can I say more than one thing? Yeah, yeah, go for it. <laughs> I I wanted to know that they had a strong moral compass. That was really important. It didn't mean they had to believe the same things that I did, but they had to really believe in what they believed. 
And I, I really value people who work really hard at what they do, but don't overwork and don't, don't burn themselves out. Don't stay late in the office. That to me is, is really unappealing because, you know, if, if I have somebody who says, well, I work 24 hours of the day, I'm like, well, you're not doing your job properly. You know, you're not doing what you should be doing or you are given too much work and there's no way of being able to meet it. So for me, it was, yeah, about people who like, who really, really care about what they do, but also really care about themselves as well and the life that they have outside of the workplace. That was really crucial to me. Nice. Yeah, two really good ones. Because um, I guess the, the first one, the moral compass, like you said, it's just something that will translate across your your life, your work, like everything you do. And the other one's like those, those really important boundaries. And I think that's actually the, the really hard one to get right. I know I've struggled with it over, over my career and still do. Cool. Well, look, um, it's starting to wrap things up a little bit. Like, I guess um, if, if just for anyone listening that's interested in, in Bloody Good Period and the work that they're continuing to do, um, they can check out website, which is www.bloodygoodperiod.com. And Gabby, in terms of your journey, and I know you're still trying to figure it out a little bit, but where are you most active if people want to follow you? Um, you can find me probably best on my website, which is gabbyedlin.com, G-A-B-B-Y-E-D-L-N. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn as Gabby Jahanshahi Edlin um, and Instagram as well with the same name. Um, I tend to post um, an update, all three really. Um, and then you can also find some of my writing on my Substack page as well, which is also under my name. It's called Post. Uh, but yeah, um, and if anyone wants to get in touch with me, then probably LinkedIn is is the best place. Awesome. Well, it's been such a pleasure. Thanks again for coming on the show and uh, wish you all the best. You too. It's been great to talk. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you've enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode and leave us a review. We're just getting started out, so it would mean a lot to us. This episode was brought to you by Craig Turner, produced by Jabril Al-Sahimi and sponsored by Jobs for Good. Until next time.